You are listening to Fika with Vicky on United Public Radio, 107.7 and 105.3 from New Orleans. things. Um, hello, everyone, and welcome to FICA. Our guest today is Colonel Chris Hadfield. Chris is the number one best-selling author of our f- focus books today, The Apollo Murders and The Defector. He's also a retired astronaut, fighter pilot, the first, and now I just found out the only Canadian to command the International Space Station, Station a musician and a speaker. Chris's books had me pacing while I read, yelling warnings to to characters out loud, and forgetting to breathe. Um, it's and it is a real honor to welcome you to Fika today, Chris. I'm uh, I'm delighted that I, I got so far as to make you forget to breathe, Vicky. That that's high praise <laughs> as an author, uh, as a fighter pilot and a test pilot. Uh, there are times when you forget to breathe because things are going on so quickly and, and the stakes are so high. So I'm glad I got that onto the page for you. Well, I was reading this. You did such a good job of bringing us into the story. Reading this, I felt like, I mean, not that I will ever know, but I was, oh my goodness, they have to like study so long and hard to get all of, to know every part of that ship. They have to be in peak physical condition Every moment, but that every moment um, matters. So even though I am usually a person who likes dialogue and not details, that every single little screw that went every time a part came off of the ship, every time something happened, I was like, oh no, this is it. <laughs> this is it. This is going to be it. Like check that twice. No, don't just leave that. And then you add the nefarious um, characters and world politics. And I was a mess. So why did you do that to me, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't take it personally, but do you think your experience, I mean, obviously had a lot to do with your ability to pull readers in like that? Well, I, I did it to you because that's the type of book that I love. I don't read a book uh, as a mild distraction or as an adjunct to what I'm doing. When I'm reading uh, a fiction book, I want to be transported. I want to be I want to be in a world that that isn't my own world. And I I want it to be so credible and engrossing that, that you know, I forget where I am. And and, uh, and so that's the type of book that I that I really set out when I started writing fiction. That's what I wanted to write. That's the type of book I've always loved and, and that I still uh, seek out when, when I'm looking to read something, uh, not just to educate myself, but but also to to really um, capture and, and make me want to turn every single page. Um, and I naturally, I'm not going to write about things that I have no knowledge about, but I've had a varied enough background as a combat fighter pilot and then a test pilot with multiple countries and having lived in multiple countries. And then as an astronaut for 21 years and being NASA's director of operations in Russia and flying three different spaceships, um, it gave me a breadth and a depth that is really rare uh, in an author, if not 
absolutely unique in anybody writing fiction, at least in this area. And so I didn't want to squander that. I, I wanted to take as much advantage of it as I could and write as well as I possibly could to try and really get the reader uh, into the story, into the moment, and hopefully with an improved intuitive sense of what that all is really like. Well, you did because I was in that book and I must admit 40% into Apollo murders. I had to set it down and stare at it for a while. And it took some seriously encouraging self-talk to say, Vicki, you can do this. You're an adult. Like, Go back. There. <laughs> and I'm glad I did. I have never... I have never had a, an experience like that in that kind of book before. Wow, that, that's huge where... praise, Vicki. I'm, delight, I'm delighted to hear it. That is enormous praise. You know, another type of praise I've gotten recently, which I, I it's so heartwarming, is I will have uh, either the husband or the wife in a couple come up to me and say, uh, if it's the husband, say, I never. And if it's the wife, she says, he never. But he never reads books. And he read your book. He, he couldn't put it down. He read it cover to cover. And and so to me, that's an enormous compliment in that uh, the book is is captivating. And interestingly enough, that someone who doesn't habitually read uh, really is looking forward to you know each one of mine as I write them. So uh, for me, that's a real measure of, of delightful success. Well, and I can see that because your books are very visual. Like they, you see it happening. So if someone isn't usually a book reader, they're a person who visualizes things through movies and television. That is going to appeal to them. That's an interesting comment because that's the way that I interface with all of the various machines that I've operated. Like whether it's a spaceship or an airplane or whatever, I start with what can I see? You know, what are the switches? What are the controls? What's actually... Uh, tangible uh, and real for me. But then once I've got those interfaces, that's when I then do all the research and go, okay, well, where do those wires connect? Or what are these cables attached to so that I, I have the background so I understand? But it always comes back to what are the cues that I'm faced with? What are the, what are the things that I can see and touch? Because that's the only part that's real to me, real time. And it's the only thing that I can actually control when, when things are happening. You need that background information to successfully be a test pilot or an astronaut. But yeah, I, I guess that means I'm very sort of uh, cinematically visual in what's in front of me just by, by nature, but maybe also by, uh, by necessity. Well, yes, it was a very kinetic experience. You felt, you touched. I mean, you, I, I can't express. But this is something I, I also want to ask you for the writers out there. When they talk about it being detailed, it was very detailed. And we when we talk about being visual, I almost see it being written in scenes. And then the scenes put together like you know seamlessly but <laughs> but yeah. is that how you were able to take care of all the details like did you have them written down or did it just come naturally with procedures that you've worked with uh neither of those two things i am um, i'm completely so wrong I, here. so i what i do first is is try and get the general gist of how the story might go um you know what uh who the main characters are going to be, what time, when is it going to be in history, where is it going to take place, and 
roughly what are the the major factors in the story? You know, like if we talk about the Apollo murders, you know, the the secret Soviet spy station Almaz and Lunachod on the surface and Apollo uh, 18, you know, which had been a real thing and the coming um, uh, interplay of the Air Force in decision making within NASA and how things were going to be financed. Take all of those real factors and then lay out the sort of the general arc of a story and then sort of start turning my characters loose. What would they do next? How, you know, I'm going to launch them to space and they've got, this is their primary objective and this is their secondary objective. And then just start writing what is actually going to happen next. And, and that's where the, the painstaking uh, uh, work towards reality is so necessary for me because uh if if it if it isn't the thing that the person would do next or that the actual operation would inevitably have happened next then the whole thing's just going to fall apart so so once i've got the big structure sort of laid out then the story uh it doesn't write itself but the sequence becomes sort of uh self-directing and then it's my job just to ignore the stuff that doesn't matter and and really try and bring to the reader um, what's happening that is influencing each of the characters and what are the little tiny triggers that if this happens, gosh, everything's going to go See, wrong. See, it's those tiny triggers that got to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, those are the ones that, that are life or death for a, for a fighter pilot. So those tiny triggers, you pay attention That's, to. Them. Yeah, no, you feel that. And so it begins with your characters for you, the people. Oh, very much so. The real people and, and the majority of the characters in both the Apollo murders and the defector, the majority of the characters in the book are real people. So obviously getting to know the reality of those people, watching video of them, reading their biographies or autobiographies, uh, uh, you know, really digging into the history. You know, for example, um, Nixon is in both, but because it's far enough in history now, you can get into the presidential libraries and the documentation is there for what they were doing every minute of every day uh, during the period of these books. So, so I can find out, you know, what movie did he watch with his wife that night? Or did he go swimming in the pool at uh, Camp David? Or did he call his gangster buddies, you know, down in the Keys in Florida? That's all in there. And, and, and so knowing that, even though it might not make it into the story, it, it gives me a real sense of where that character's mind was right then. What was the interplay between Kissinger and Nixon at the time? You know, when Nixon was at Camp David watching, uh, kind of surprising, like he was watching Lawrence of Arabia while uh, Kissinger was, you know, actually in at the Astoria in New York, actually dealing with the start of the Yom Kippur War. So uh, thank you, because I was wondering after you said that, what kind of movies did he watch? <laughs> yeah, it's sort, of, sort of big, glorious Ben-Hur kind of epics, you know, and and a really surprisingly a real close tie to his kids. Like he called one of his children at least every single day, no matter where he was. Uh, you know, just I, I was quite surprised to see someone who's running one of the most powerful nations on earth as its president, and yet still um, very much interested in just the sort of typical activities of a day-to-day -day person and as a day-to-day -day parent. Well, I think you would have to be with that kind of, of lifestyle, right? To sort of balance 
everything out. But this is, and I think you've answered, I was going to ask you about the research because, and I thought by reading your book that you would be the kind of person that enjoyed it because of the curiosity and the scene. And I see that you do. So is this sometimes you just get going down that rabbit hole and you forget to go back and write? (laughs) It would be very easy Uh, to do that. Sure. Yeah. Paralysis by analysis, right? Or paralysis (laughs) by research. Um, Yes, it's very easy to do that because I will dig into a stream that that obviously now I realize, oh, hey, this is interesting. And this is probably going to be useful in the writing of this fiction book, this real thing that happened or or this this thing that almost happened. Um, And when I wrote The Apollo Murders, I had because it was the first thriller fiction I'd ever written, I had no anticipatory judgment of whether this was really going to be useful or if I I was just, you know, uh, being personally interested. And so I found rather than just research it, what I did for the Apollo murders is I said, okay, this is an interesting story. I'm going to just now start using all this information and write it uh, as a chapter of the book. And then I need to make sure I have the characters that cover it and the place. And I just start writing it. And so my first draft of the Apollo murders was 195,000 words where the final (laughs) book was 135,000 words. So I wrote 60,000 words, which is kind of like a short novel. I I wrote 60,000 words that were, they are, they are absolutely part of the book, but they weren't needed to tell the actual story of what the Apollo murders is. It's really good now as a resource, especially because the Apollo murders is being made into an eight part television series. Yes, that's very exciting. So there's all of this uh, unwritten backstory that is a wealth of information for the screenwriter um, when, when they're looking at how to bring it to the screen. But when I wrote The Defector, the second book in the series, I have a, a just because of experience, like anything else, I think I have a slightly better innate judgment of, yes, this is interesting, and I'm, I need to read it to, to make sure that I have the depth uh, in my own background. But I don't need to write it as part of the story. Um, and uh, and so that is uh, it. My first draft of the defector was a hundred thousand words, and I removed when I was speaking to my editor when I'd finished writing it. You know, we removed a couple things and we added in a couple things, but the book ended up just under a hundred thousand words as well. So, so I, I'm much more efficient as a writer now. But but the fundamental research, I read something, Vicky. I said as a writer, you know, you you. You write and then you agonize over word choices and syntax and grammar. And then you 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 agonize over the detail and research and you dig way into making sure that all of the facts are correct. And then you go to the next sentence. And that's that's how it is. You know, you write <laughs> one sentence and, and it could be an hour of making sure that that sentence is correct. That the thing, you know, I'm writing in 1973. What was cultural norm what was the music on the radio what was it like to start a car and drive it what was it like to use a telephone what were the common catchphrases what what type of pants did a guy wear in 73 you know it just what, uh, trying to make sure that uh that i've got it as as good as i can possibly make it without making it a distraction for the reader i just want it to be to completely ring true whether it's is something seemingly trivial or whether it's something absolutely uh, technically uh, complex. To me, they're all equally important and I want to get them right 
so that then the story can really blossom and the, and the characters' reactions to the story. Well, I think that um, as far as historical fiction goes, writing in an era that people still remember is is dangerous work, okay? <laughs> yeah, I agree. They call you on it so it's got to be the hardest to research and um and and second of all you also want to get it right because you don't want to step on anybody's toes or anything right like you right. want you want to so yeah that that would take a lot but you do show it i didn't it wasn't stuck there it all ran ran through like i mean i can't believe this is like your second novel because um you do it and 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 aside from other things because i'm interested in the writing aspect of your life you did it that was a fantastic first novel because like uh, i mean it, it pulled me it pulled me right in now well, when we talk oh it's just amazing to me that like i've toiled at all the different stages of my life where i've set myself an objective and then i've studied as well as i possibly can and then i've tried to teach and learn from as many people as possible and teach myself how to do these things. But then whether it is uh, downhill ski racing or uh, flying airplanes or being a test pilot or whatever, you actually have to then perform and, and you have to take all of these uh, theoretical things and, and piece part skills and you have to put them together into integrated performance. And to me, writing a book is the same. Uh, you know, all of the various sub skills have to come together in such a way that uh, that you can do it uh, completely as well as you're capable. And so for me to to get through that and then like a nervous father looking through the, the window at the, at the newborn um, to then see so many people loving the book and praising the book and, you know, having it as a number one bestseller. I mean, for the defector. This, the the London and Sunday Times they put it as the thriller of the month, and they ahead of John Grisham and, and Lee Child who writes the Jack Reacher series, which is just I mean it's just surreal for me, and so I, I'm really delighted that uh, that people are enjoying uh, reading the fiction that I'm writing, and and it, it encourages me, it gives me great pleasure uh to to know that all that work is accomplishing what i hoped and it gives me great motivation you know to continue and, and write the third book in the series well i think also what contributes to that popularity is they're very respectful books to anybody that might be reading them like to women to they are just i find that they are very respectful of the reader and and the reading population so i think that contributes to it as well but that's that's a really astute observation i i think i i've been a public figure for for decades um uh, in canada very much so and since my third space flight kind of globally um because of some of the things that i've done and uh and it is it's really easy and tempting to take the low road and a lot of people do publicly um just because it you don't have to work so hard but um i never want to do that i i find i it dis i disappoint myself whenever i i do that and and i'm disappointed by other people who had a choice and they just like eh you know i'll just i'll just take the easy way out and and so I, I try and hold myself to a standard that I respect. And therefore, that means uh, 
treating everybody else with respect. I was at a book signing last night. It was supposed to last about an hour, maybe 90 minutes. It went three and a half hours. And, um, but every single person in line, the, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were there, uh, my job is to have a real good human interaction with every single person. I'm not just signing their book, next, next, next. You know, I'm not just some tennis star signing 50 things you know, anonymously and then you know, ducking into the tunnel. I am really trying to do my absolute best to listen to that person who has, who has done me the incredible honor of lining up for an hour and a half just for a minute with me. And, and I just think it would be so disappointing if I didn't um, dignify them and honor them with the respect. And so when I'm writing, it's the same thing. I'm not going to have throwaway characters. I'm not going to have, you know, just people who are bad for no reason. I want my characters to be responding to all of their innermost urges and doing things because that's what they would do from the part of the world they're from and what their nature is. And, and so I, I try and be as careful and deliberate and complete at that as I possibly can. And it is noticed. I mean, I read a lot of books. And as you read more and more, some books just go sh after a few chapters. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. not an insult. It's just, I've been there, done that. And this sure. was definitely not the case. And when you talk about respect, <clears throat> I just have to bring up your main character, Kaz. Okay. Which I like very, very much. Um, he's very human. And I mean, this book shows us that life is dangerous. I mean, these books show us that life is dangerous right from the first minute. The smallest little thing, I won't say what that small thing was, but yeah. after working so hard, as you talk about learning from everything, working so hard for this goal, it was taken away from him overnight all that work and training. And then he went and he moved on to another aspect of his life. Even if it comes up that he sees someone living the life he wanted, it only lasts for a minute. And then he goes to the positivity that he had. And he found a place in this world, not being physically perfect, but you have to be pretty physically perfect in that world for safety reasons. And he found a, a, he found a place in that world for himself to become a hero of these books. So I am wondering, as a writer, as somebody who I'm not saying I don't know how to say it, but you know, astronauts have to be gods, like they have to do all of this stuff. So people look upon you that way. But this is a very diverse kind of hero. Do you think that resilience is the kind of hero that people need today? Do you think it's just walking away from stereotypes is time for? Or do you think, um, that everybody has to face adversity in order to claim that hero title. Maybe all three of these things, those things. I think I've been lucky to meet a lot of my heroes um, and people that I saw as, uh, as comic book figures almost in the simplicity of my vision of them. As I've gotten to know them uh, over time, uh, you recognize they're just another person and they've got, great strengths and capabilities and they've got uh, irreparable flaws just just like each of us as within ourselves and and so i don't want to represent any of my characters inaccurately and my main protagonist uh, it's the type of person that perhaps i admire the most who 
who was born with a great set of skills, but who then worked really hard to make the most of them. And then because of the circumstances of life, did not get to do some of the things that they really maybe by right should have. And then what do they choose to do next? And it's it's a microcosm really of, of an entire life. You know, as an infant, you're just nothing but raw material. And as, as an aging senior approaching death, you're much diminished from what you might've done in the peak of your life. So if you take a character and just apply some of those diminishments early, then then what do they do and how do they still make the best of it? And it also, as the writer, gives me a lot of freedom then to move that person around. Because if, if they were just doing the heart of what they were born into, they probably wouldn't have changed professions. So so I, I'm really happy with Kaz, Kaz Zemeckis as my main protagonist. He's a really interesting guy and he's with me all the time, Vicky. He's, he's sort of uh, become a real person. So when I'm in a new situation, I can sort of hear how Kaz would react to this and what he would do and think. And, and I find that very helpful, actually, in, in considering the next book that I'm writing, and, uh, but also in, in bringing him to life as completely as I can. So perhaps uh, Victor, we all just to point to... out, oh, we have yeah. two minutes left. Okay, okay. So my final question is the most important one. Is it true that Tang, the astronauts, <laughs> did not really drink Tang after 1960? Because I grew up with this being an absolute truth, and it is so disillusioning. <laughs> Tang did fly in space, but almost all astronauts get sick. At least they feel ill. Or, or a lot of them throw up. It's just normal because of the, you know, the taking away gravity is hugely disruptive to your balance system and, and your body makes you nauseous. And so to answer your question, you know what Tang tastes like, but I'm not sure that you know what Tang tastes like while you throw up. And so for <laughs> and the, early astronauts, <laughs> yeah, the early astronauts who had that experience, they're like, Tang wasn't all that great going down. And it was not what I wanted to taste coming up where I'm not drinking any more Tang. So yeah, Tang Tang had a very good marketing program. Tang did fly in space, but it's been a long, long time since anybody, uh, anybody had Tang in orbit. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time here today. Thank you for the books. And I wish you all the luck in writing more because then I get to read them. So, and <laughs> Thanks, Vicki. I'm deeply into the research phase for the third book in the series now, and I promise you're going to like it. Okay, terrific. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you. And for the rest of you listening, I will see you next week. That was so fun. I will see you next week, and may your coffee be hot and your stories sweet. Thank you very much. You are listening to Fika with Vicky on United Public Radio, 107.7 and 105.3 from New Orleans.